Hi everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Cramopedia. I'm your host, Allison, and today I'm going to be telling you a pretty heavy story. This was a case suggestion that I got and I couldn't let go of once I began my research. I know I say this a lot, but it's true. It really captivated me, and I'm not entirely sure why, but it's possibly because this is the most terrifying thing that I think anyone can imagine happening to them. Today's story takes place in Austria, but I won't be surprised if some of my American and Canadian listeners have heard it before. What happened to Natasha Kampusch is every parent's absolute worst nightmare, but thankfully at the end of the eight years that she was held captive, she was still alive and able to tell her story. Let me state explicitly to you that the events described today are things that happened over a course of eight years, beginning when Natasha was only 10 years old. This story involves patterns of abuse against a child that was being held captive during her formative years. I'm also going to be describing the incredibly complex relationships that victims can develop with their abusers. I understand that these stories are particularly sensitive, but through reading Natasha's interviews and her novel titled 3096 Days, I've learned exactly how resilient and strong humans can be. Through sheer grit, Natasha was able to adapt to her environment and, when the moment was right, escape to freedom. And in the words of Natasha herself, saying no to defeat was the only way to survive. Although this story is a heavy one, like I said, for once on a true crime podcast, the ending is actually quite happy. If you find yourself unable to listen to today's episode because it has to deal with abuse, especially against a child, then I completely understand, I'm not going to fault you for it, and I'll see you when the next episode comes out. But if you can stomach it, you're going to learn exactly what Natasha Kampusch's life looked like from age 10 to age 18 while in captivity. Just a reminder that you can follow my Instagram at CrimopediaPod for updates on cases and if you want to get a hold of me. I also have a website at crimopediapod.ca where you can find all of the source material for these episodes if you're interested in learning more about the stories I tell. Again, this case goes out by suggestion, so if you request a case through my website or by email at crimopediapod at hotmail.ca, I will get to it eventually. Lastly, I wanted to apologize in advance for any incorrect pronunciation with the names in this case because, again, this all takes place in Austria and I'm Canadian. I'm going to do my best, but bear with me. With that, I think it's a good time to jump right in. Natasha Kampusch was born on February 17th of 1988 to parents Brigitta Cerny and Ludwig Koch in Vienna, Austria. Natasha also has two older sisters by the same parents. Natasha was a student at the Brioschwig Primary School, and on the morning of March 2nd, 1998, that's exactly where she was headed. At this time in 1998, her parents were separated, but she spent a lot of time between homes with each parent. Natasha herself, in her novel 3096 Days, tells readers that her parents would often become physically violent with her and used to slap her as discipline. But in hindsight, Natasha claims that she doesn't consider this to be particularly abusive and says that her home life overall was okay considering the circumstances. The day before March 2nd of 1998, it was a Sunday, and she had just returned to her mother's house from a vacation and was gearing up to go to school the next day. That next day, on the 2nd, Natasha was permitted to walk to school alone for the first time in her entire 10 years of living. 
10-year-old Natasha headed out to school that day alone, and honestly, I'm sure she was feeling the same way that I was when I was first allowed to start walking to and from school on my own. Independent, excited, and self-assured. Natasha was on her way to school on the 2nd of March, walking alone along a sidewalk when she noticed a man standing beside a white delivery van not doing anything in particular. It's unclear if she mentally flagged him as being suspicious, but she didn't cross sidewalks and didn't turn to walk in the other direction, so we can only assume that she was feeling self-assured enough to continue walking, because that's exactly what she did. This man's name was Wolfgang Pricklepil, and he was an Austrian communications technician. Wolfgang was also born in Vienna, and at the time of this incident, he was 44 years old. When 10-year-old Natasha passed by an odd-looking Wolfgang standing beside his mysterious white van, she was grabbed by him and shoved into the back of it within seconds. A 12-year-old witness would come forward saying that she saw Natasha being dragged into a white van by two men, but police would learn years later that Wolfgang was in fact acting alone. Without wasting any time, Wolfgang got in the driver's side and sped away, holding Natasha down in the back of the van as he drove to the suburban area of Strasshof in Vienna where he lived. Young Natasha was fully lucid and was already strategizing while she was being held down on the floor. Within seconds of Wolfgang driving away, she began rapid-firing questions at him about his life, remembering from a true crime documentary she had watched when she was younger that it was important to get as much information out of a criminal as possible, so that later on they're easier to identify. The questions began with, who are you? Are you married? Do you have children? And progressed all the way into, what size shoes do you wear? It's unclear to me if Wolfgang even bothered to answer her questions or if he was just too frantic to worry about what she was saying because, you know, he had just kidnapped a 10-year-old. But it didn't matter how much information he divulged to Natasha during that car ride because evidently she would get to know him very, very well. Once they had arrived at Wolfgang's house, he carried Natasha into his garage, through a trap door, and into a tiny cellar that he had clearly spent significant time and money preparing. There is a video tour of police personnel navigating their way through the maze that Wolfgang had constructed underneath his yard and into his cellar, and I highly recommend you watch it because no words can truly articulate how much effort and planning went into excavating, modeling, securing, and concealing this compartment that Natasha would be kept in for the next eight years. But I'm going to try. I'll make sure to link the video on my website and Instagram for sure though, because it's definitely worth checking out if you're interested. Underneath the trapdoor in Wolfgang's garage were a set of stairs that led to a cellar room below. Inside of that cellar, behind a white, what seems to look like a mini freezer, was a hollowed out tunnel in the concrete that was reinforced by a steel latch door locked from the outside that led into a secret 5 by 5 meter underground cell. The cell is bare, obviously windowless, soundproofed, and was equipped with a bed which was reached by a ladder. As well, it looks like from the video that there was somewhat of a working kitchen or sink area and a plastic ventilator fan that rattled incessantly, according to Natasha. When Wolfgang finally managed to get Natasha down into the cell through this maze that he had excavated, he took her school bag, and when she begged to keep it, he accused her of withholding a transmitter, which she could call for help with. Natasha recalled finding this very strange and being almost like a window into his unusual delusions. What 10-year-old hides a transmitter? What even is a transmitter? 
It could be lost in translation and the actual word he used was cell phone or mobile phone, but nonetheless, Natasha found this to be very strange but did comply and handed over her belongings. The search for Natasha began right away when her absence was noted from school. I mean, she's 10 years old. There's nowhere else a 10 year old is really supposed to be on a Monday morning. Due to the witness sighting by the 12 year old that I had mentioned who reported that Natasha had been dragged into a white van by two men, police began undertaking a massive investigation beginning with a stop and search of 776 white minivans in the city of Vienna that matched the description. Frustratingly, of these 776 white minivans included Wolfgangs, who actually lived about 30 minutes away from Vienna in that Strasshof suburban area. At the time of his stop and search, his alibi was that he was home alone at the time of Natasha's kidnapping and that he had been using his van that day to transport building materials and rubble from the construction of his home. Even if this was true, the construction and rubble that he was transporting away from his home was likely stuff that he had pulled out of his cellar while excavating it and getting ready to kidnap a 10-year-old girl. Even more frustrating was police were satisfied with this answer and didn't pursue him any further. This was very surprising to me because Wolfgang had claimed to be home alone at the time of the kidnapping with nobody able to corroborate that. In hindsight, this was a very obvious lie, but even if that was not realized at the time, it's kind of surreal just to think about how many people are able to get away with serious crimes by using half-assed alibis. Another example of this was in the case of Alison Perot, which I covered in an earlier episode, where Frances Carl Roy gave police a very vague alibi and was able to get away with her murder for a decade. After the search of the minivans didn't prove fruitful, police began investigating French serial killer and rapist Michael Fournier, who has taken the lives of 10 known victims over a period of 1987 to 2001. Police were at a loss for answers pretty early on in the search, and Natasha had her passport on her at the time of her disappearance because, as you'll recall, the day before she had just returned from vacation. So this is why police began extending the search abroad. Despite the known victims of Michael Fournier all being kidnapped in a manner similar to Natasha's, there was no real conclusive link that indicated to police that a serial killer operating in France, who at the time of her disappearance was still unidentified, had anything to do with her disappearance. Meanwhile, while police were investigating that, Natasha had just begun an eight-year endeavor, living in the 5x5 cell that Wolfgang Pricklepill had dug out for her underneath his garage. During the beginning months of her captivity, Wolfgang continued to live his normal life. Wolfgang had a best friend, Ernst Holsapel, who would often visit Wolfgang at his home as well as his mother, all while 10-year-old Natasha remained underneath his home with the visitors none the wiser. Wolfgang would go down into the cellar through the trapdoor and spend time with Natasha, tucking her into bed at night and reading her stories. He would buy her expensive toys and train sets. He began teaching her more about reading, writing, and math so she didn't lose any skills from not being in school. And she was also given a small television and radio along with books. But she was only permitted to watch and listen to pre-recorded tapes so that she was unaware of the multinational search that was underway for her. Natasha says that at this time, to cope with the oddity of her situation and total lack of control, she had psychologically regressed to the mental age of a toddler, playing with toys as if she was a very young child again. After some time, Wolfgang began bathing Natasha. 
And in order to cope with this, she would sink down to a place in her mind where she was convinced that she was at the spa. And she did this to cope with how humiliating this was for her. She was 10 years old. She didn't need to be bathed by someone else, but he insisted. According to Natasha, being compliant was the easiest thing to get her through the days. She knew that there was no way she was getting out of this cellar, and so she just lived day and night, listening to whatever he said and doing whatever he asked. Eventually, the gifts from Wolfgang began getting increasingly weird. He would bring her mouthwash and rolls of tape, but with being in captivity, she was always happy to receive them, and frankly, happy to see Wolfgang in a positive mood, ready to give her a gift, instead of being angry or delusional. And delusional, he certainly was. At one point, he told her that he was an Egyptian god, and she just went along with it because, again, compliance was the easiest road to follow. During the first six months of her captivity, Natasha was not allowed to leave her cell for any reason. This arrangement would evolve as Wolfgang would allow her to exit at times, supervised, of course. She would still spend extended periods of time down there alone at night and while Wolfgang was at work. But for the first little while, Natasha didn't have any desire to object to this. She knew she wasn't getting out of the cellar, and she had no desire to explore the rest of his property. I can only imagine that after a full day of having to hang out with this weird 44-year-old man who kidnapped you, being alone in a cellar was kind of like a safe haven. And when Wolfgang did bring her into the house, he would use scare tactics to get Natasha to obey to his every command, despite the fact that, again, she was more than happy to comply just to get through the day. Wolfgang would repeatedly tell Natasha that the windows and doors in his home were booby-trapped with explosives and wires, something that was absolutely not true. And he also claimed to be carrying a gun at all times and would threaten to kill her if she tried to escape, something that might be true. He did this to instill fear in her so that he could bring her into his house without worrying that she would try to escape. This next part is disgusting, but he wanted to cuddle in bed with young Natasha and spend time with her during the day, like a partner. In his mind, the only way to convince her to do this without putting up a fight was to convince her that when she was inside the house, she had to walk on eggshells and be attached to Wolfgang at the hip in order to avoid the booby traps, the wires, and the gun that he supposedly had. Things would continue this way until Natasha became a teenager. She stayed in her 5x5 underground cell for most of the day, only being allowed out to spend quality time with Wolfgang. I'm going to say outright what I'm sure most of you were thinking at this point. Natasha did in fact say that she was sexually assaulted by Wolfgang but this is not something she talks about in interviews, and it's one detail of her captivity that she refuses to elaborate on. So out of her respect, I'm not going to sit here and speculate, but yes, it did happen. And so when I say quality time with Wolfgang, you can imagine me putting air quotes around the words quality time, because I think we all know what this means. Around this time, when Natasha was a teenager living in Wolfgang's cellar, most people in Austria assumed that Natasha had been murdered and may never be found. What people didn't know was that she had spent the entirety of these years growing into a young woman in Wolfgang's underground dungeon. And at this time during her captivity, she was getting sick of being stuck with him. And so for the first time after all these years of sheer compliance, she began engaging in acts of defiance. Natasha would throw bottles of water along the sides of her underground cell, trying to attract attention to her situation, which evidently didn't work, 
but her attempts at drawing attention infuriated Wolfgang. He demanded that Natasha call him master, which she openly said to his face was ridiculous. After her escape, she was quoted in an interview as saying that it reminded her of little kids on the playground at school saying, I'm the king of the playground and you'll all listen to me. She thought it was childish and wasn't afraid to tell him that. Frankly, after spending this many years with a delusional old man, I would be getting pretty sick of his shit too. But Wolfgang found these acts of defiance to be humiliating and decided that he had to break Natasha back down and rebuild her again. It reminds me somewhat of a prison where individuals are stripped of their names, given ID numbers, and treated like disposable numbers in a system, brutalized by those in authority who often take advantage of their power. Wolfgang began verbally and physically abusing Natasha whenever she became defiant, and instead of bringing her into his home to spend quality time with her, she was left alone in her cell for even longer periods of time, often without food. As well, just to make this even worse, Wolfgang also constructed an intercom system so that he was able to lie in his own bed inside of his own house and scream at Natasha at all hours of the night and day. At random, unpredictable times, he would get on this intercom system and yell insults to her inside of her tiny cell from the comfort of his own bed. Her safe haven, where she got to spend time alone, away from Wolfgang, was no longer safe. From my understanding, this is where the real manipulation starts. It was not enough for Wolfgang to physically and emotionally berate Natasha, but he also once told her that he reached out to her parents for ransom money, but was unable to get a hold of them, which was not at all true. But it seemed like he was trying to convince her that nobody cared or was searching for her. It was hard for such a young girl not to believe it, as again, he'd made it intentional not to let her watch any current news or listen to any current radio, so she was completely unaware that anyone was looking for her, let alone how large the search actually was. Wolfgang succeeded in breaking Natasha down, and once he was satisfied with her level of obedience again, it was time to start bringing her back into his house, but again, not for quality time. Instead, Natasha was made to do labor, cleaning the entire house, often forced to wear next to no clothing while doing it. Natasha was on a speak only when spoken to policy, and if she did speak without being prompted, she was often beat. Natasha said that at this time during her captivity, as a budding teenager, the stress of the beatings and the unknown of when Wolfgang would snap would give her heart palpitations, often so bad that she would become dizzy and suffer from blurred vision. According to Dietmar Ecker, Natasha's current media advisor, Wolfgang would beat her so badly that Natasha could hardly walk, and he would starve her until he was convinced that she was too weak to try and escape or fight back. The severe beatings and berating would continue for some time, but Natasha was so smart, and she began using her knowledge of how much Wolfgang weirdly endeared and admired her to make him stop. When Wolfgang would beat her, Natasha began to beat herself until Wolfgang was so distraught that he would beg her to stop. It's evident so far that their dynamic was much more complicated than most people I think understand about the relationship between abusers and victims. Wolfgang adored and admired Natasha in weird ways, which she could use to her advantage to make the beatings and abuse stop, and she was able to tap into the fact that Wolfgang abducted her with the intentions of creating some sort of fantasy life with a 10-year-old in order to win him over during times of severe abuse. 
During her captivity, Wolfgang dyed Natasha's hair blonde and dressed her to fit the fantasy that he always had. He would also confide in Natasha about his darkest secrets and conspiracy theory beliefs. He would force her to sit there and listen to him talk for hours, sometimes with her joining in on the discussion. Again, compliance was the easiest way through. Wolfgang had evidently spent years constructing a fantasy life in his head where a young, hot blonde would cook, clean, and stay obedient, and he was able to kidnap Natasha and create that for himself. Let's not forget, though, that she was not a young, hot blonde and she was 10 years old, and this fantasy life that he had dug so far deep into his brain was so deranged that he thought kidnapping her was an acceptable way to go about living it instead of I don't know, getting a girlfriend or paying sex workers. But in his mind, Wolfgang was perfectly happy with the arrangement he had created. Wolfgang had someone who was cooking and cleaning for him while being perfectly obedient. In my opinion, what was most important was he wanted a partner to confide his deepest secrets in, and with Natasha, he got that because she didn't have a choice. Because the two were basically attached at the hip for so many years, Wolfgang grew to trust her over all the time that had passed, and eventually, Natasha ended up trusting him right back. And I'm going to be honest, this is the point in the story where Natasha begins to get a lot of criticism, and I think you'll see why, but that doesn't mean it's justified. As the years had passed and Natasha grew older into her later teen years, she had built enough of a relationship with Wolfgang and fed into his delusions the exact way that he wanted that he trusted her enough to spend time in the house and in the garden during the day without his helicopter supervision. That doesn't mean that he wasn't nearby, but it means that he trusted her enough and knew that she was complacent enough to not try anything because she had certainly experienced the consequences of defiance before. Several of Wolfgang's associates even recalled to the media that they remember meeting Natasha while she was inside of Wolfgang's house. They just thought she was some girlfriend, but she was never referred to by name and was never introduced to any of his friends. The dynamic was certainly odd. But if you think about how dependent Natasha had become on complacency and for how long she had to do so just to survive, I kind of get it. Natasha even met Wolfgang's best friend, Ernst Holzlepel, who was introduced to him as an acquaintance, but even he couldn't really figure out if she was a friend or a girlfriend or what was going on because things just seemed so normal. She was just some girl in his house doing chores. Ernst recalls meeting Natasha and her greeting him very warmly, shaking his hand and smiling with no real indication that she didn't want to be there. Even more strange, after Natasha's 18th birthday, Wolfgang began taking her on day trips outside of his house, but of course threatened her life if she made any alarming noises or tried to alert for help. Wolfgang ended up taking Natasha on 13 day trips in total, including a ski trip in Vienna. I would be misinforming you if I didn't tell you that most of these day trips consisted of visits to a vacant apartment to help Wolfgang with the labor of renovating the place for a friend, but still, it may seem like an unusual thing to do to take your hostage out on multiple day trips. That is, if you don't understand the powers of coercive control. During these day trips, Wolfgang made Natasha walk in front of him at all times in very close proximity to him in order to minimize her chances of feeling like an escape would be a good idea. Natasha said that she knew it was always much too risky, knowing in the back of her mind that Wolfgang was also delusional and therefore unpredictable, with his threats of killing her and her family always looming over her. If she did try to escape and fail, 
she had no idea what the potential consequences of that could be. He had severely beaten her before, but he had always threatened worse. But if something happened and the consequences were Wolfgang beating on Natasha, and it looked like that was the only thing he was going to do, after eight full years of living together, she knew how to manipulate him right back. Wolfgang was a fragile, insecure man and could arguably be cracked easier than Natasha could. During the period of time when Natasha and Wolfgang were going on day trips after Natasha had her 18th birthday on February 17th of 2006, Natasha turned to Wolfgang and said straight up to his face, "'You have brought a situation upon us in which only one of us can make it through alive. I'm grateful for you not killing me and taking care of me, but you can't force me to stay with you. I am my own person with my own needs. This situation must come to an end.'" Natasha closed her eyes in that moment, anticipating the situation to escalate, anticipating him to beat her, and getting ready for having to beat herself in order to manipulate him to stop. But with a deadpan stare, Wolfgang said nothing. He had nothing to counter that statement with. He had gotten exactly what he wanted out of her over the last eight years. He had robbed Natasha of her childhood and turned her into a labor worker, captive in a cell that he had spent over a year constructing, a captive that he could share his life and deepest thoughts with. Wolfgang with Natasha was like a child to a toy doll. A toy doll that gets dragged around by the wrist everywhere the child goes. A toy doll that has to sit there inanimately, listening to the child go on and on about all of its thoughts, worries, concerns, and secrets. A toy doll that has to cuddle in bed with the child at night. A toy doll that has absolutely no say in the matter of where it goes, what the child does to it, how it's dressed, or how it's treated. And just like a doll, Wolfgang expected Natasha to be complacent. But Natasha was a woman now. He had kidnapped her when she was 10 and now she was 18. He had gotten exactly what he wanted out of her when she was too scared to say no. He had gotten exactly what he wanted from the moment he began excavation under his garage. He had gotten exactly what he wanted out of her the very first night that he kidnapped Natasha, when he tucked her into bed and kissed her goodnight after reading her a bedtime story. Wolfgang wanted something to nurture. He wanted to nurture a helpless person, but also exploit her for his own personal gain and nurture his fantasy. A helpless person who was complacent and obedient. But now Natasha was 18 and she was no longer helpless. Natasha herself, in one of the many interviews she'd done, said that Wolfgang knew this, and she was sure in that moment where she told him that this situation had to end, that there was some abstract voice telling him that what he was doing to her by keeping her captive was wrong, but he also knew that it was too far and too late to turn back. He had exceeded some kind of threshold in his own mind. They had spent the last eight years almost exclusively with each other, and I think it's hard to spend that much time with anyone without humanizing them through their own shared experiences. Like I said, this dynamic was complicated, but both of them in that moment knew that it wasn't a sustainable situation anymore. On August 23rd of that year in 2006, Natasha and Wolfgang were living business as usual. Wolfgang would lead her around the property to cook, clean, and serve him. But on this afternoon, Natasha was vacuuming his car while he sat down and watched her. Out of nowhere, Wolfgang received a phone call on his cell phone, and he stepped away from the car Natasha was cleaning. He stepped away due to the noise of the vacuum, or maybe due to being careless, or maybe he knew exactly what he was doing giving their prior conversation. But 
It only took Natasha less than a minute to realize that for the first time in a very long time, Wolfgang was completely out of her sightline in every direction. And assumably, she was out of his as well while he was busy on the phone. Without a second of hesitation, Natasha put down the vacuum, allowing it to still run, and began sprinting. Natasha ran her first full 200 meters since before she was 10 years old, across gardens, over fences, begging any passersby to call for help. Unfortunately, nobody helped frantic Natasha as she ran and screamed, with one woman even yelling at Natasha to get off of her lawn. And so Natasha had to keep running, probably much longer than her cardiovascular system was used to at this point. If you've listened to my episode on Kitty Genovese, you might be thinking about the bystander effect, and it's honestly unclear to me exactly how many people avoided Natasha or if there were any crowds, but it took a full five minutes of sprinting and screaming before she approached the house of 71-year-old Inge T. Inge opened up her front door to an exhausted Natasha, pale, thin, and battered, who could only muster up enough strength to say, I am Natasha Kampusch. Inge called police who arrived shortly after 1pm and took Natasha down to the police station in the nearby town of Dutch Wargram, which is approximately northeast of Vienna. Natasha was prematurely ID'd by a scar on her body, and when police were able to locate the home where she had been captive for the last eight years, they found her passport, the same passport she had on her when she was kidnapped a day after she returned home from vacation. Using that, they were able to positively ID her as missing Natasha Kampusch. Natasha was in relatively good health, despite being presently shaken up, but she was also reportedly quite pale and was underweight given her age. She had only gained a total of 7 pounds throughout her 8-year captivity from ages 10 to 18, and had only grown a few inches taller. Natasha confided to reporters after the fact that, given her conversation with Wolfgang a few weeks prior to her escape when she told him that the situation must come to an end, it's possible that he saw this coming, but that's something we'll never know. Police began immediately searching for Wolfgang and had discovered that he had began running, which was not really a surprise. They first went to his home and began conducting an extensive search of the property as well as the dungeon where Natasha was kept most of the time. While this was all going on, Wolfgang had actually gone to see his best friend, Ernst Holzapel. Once he had discovered that Natasha had ran, Wolfgang had taken his BMW but eventually decided to abandon it, likely as police would be searching for cars matching the description of the vehicle missing from his home. After he abandoned his car, he called Ernst and told him that he was on the run from police after dodging a checkpoint for drinking and driving, and that he needed to be picked up. When Ernst picked up Wolfgang, he was shocked and disturbed to discover that Wolfgang was actually not running from police for drinking and driving, but instead, he was wanted for the abduction and eight-year captivity of Natasha Kampusch. The two drove around Vienna and the outskirts for hours while police combed the streets searching for Wolfgang in his BMW. To Ernst, Wolfgang confessed everything the abduction, the cellar, the sexual, emotional, and physical abuse against Natasha. He elaborated on exactly how he constructed his most grotesque fantasies into real life with her. Eventually, Wolfgang exited the vehicle while the two were in the eastern part of Vienna, ran down into the underground train system at Wen Aspern Nord Station, and jumped in front of an oncoming train, dying instantly. 
This outcome was not surprising for Natasha, as he would commonly say to her that, quote, they will not catch me alive. But that did not stop her from mourning his loss, which is another point she gets a lot of criticism for. She was quoted as saying that she feels sorry for him and that he's a poor soul. In my opinion, he was quite obviously a disturbed individual, one with distinctly unsetting paraphilias, but personally that doesn't make me feel bad for him. However, I didn't spend eight of my most formative years forced getting to know this guy as intimately as Natasha did. Natasha mourned his passing and even lit a candle at his memorial, which is not something uncommon of survivors of repeated abuse. Death alone is not something one can process linearly, but compounded with a very complicated abuser-victim dynamic, I can only imagine how complex the emotions she was feeling actually were. Points like this are fuel for the public and media to point to Natasha having Stockholm Syndrome, a claim that she refutes entirely, saying that people who use this term to describe her situation do not allow her the platform to describe the complex relationship that she had with her kidnapper. She says that people who say that she has Stockholm Syndrome simply reduce her experience down to a syndrome, albeit one that's not even in the DSM-5, but more on that later. Back at Wolfgang's home, evidence recovery for police had proven to be quite difficult, as Wolfgang had been using a very outdated 1980s Commodore 64 computer, which was incompatible with police data recovery programs back in 2003 when this was all going down. What was found, however, was evidence that Wolfgang was trying to accumulate documents and produce false papers for Natasha as a Czech citizen, possibly so that the two could travel across borders without suspicion and begin a new life together with minimal risk of him ever being caught. Other officers who were sent to the scene of Wolfgang's suicide for evidence recovery collected some DNA, which revealed to police that Wolfgang had actually never committed any other crimes, at least none that he was caught for, because his information was not found in any other existing databases at that time. Police Major General Gerhard Lang, who has been very outspoken to the media regarding the case of Natasha Kampusch, saying sometimes things that I don't personally agree with about her situation, said that the fact that Wolfgang was not present in any current databases was evidence to rule out the possibility that Wolfgang was a serial predator. Natasha speculates that Wolfgang simply snapped, she said that he committed his crime after spending his entire life in limbo, being bound by social norms, and that he walked a fine line for a long time between having urges that were becoming progressively uncontrollable and conforming to society, these two being obviously irreconcilable. After Natasha's escape was made public to the media, along with Wolfgang's suicide, people began writing to Natasha expressing their sorrow and empathy for her. People were offering her room and board, offering her gifts, in her eyes, again reducing her to a pitied little girl. I think it's hard to blame anyone for doing this because in their eyes, when Natasha was kidnapped, she was 10 years old and simply frozen in time. But Natasha didn't want any of this. She didn't feel like a pitied little girl. She wanted to move on with her life now that she was finally free. Again, because she didn't feed into any of this, she was given a lot of flack by the general public and media. This was a pervasive theme for her, even with her own parents who she admittedly had somewhat of a contentious relationship with before her abduction. She was reunited with her parents after her escape, but according to Erich Zwettler of the Federal Criminal Investigations Bureau, she just wanted to rest alone and honestly didn't express interest in seeing anyone. 
Again, another point she gets a lot of criticism for. But in a letter to her father, she writes, We have the rest of our lives now. Presumably, she meant that they had the rest of their lives to spend time together, but now, immediately after her escape, all she wanted was some space. As of the most current news sources I could find, Natasha was actually the owner of Wolfgang's house. Yes, you heard that correctly. After Wolfgang's death, Natasha purchased the home that she was held captive in. She said that she did this to protect it from vandalism and to protect it from becoming a morbid tourist attraction. At this point after her escape, she had become a household name, and many, many people knew who she was and could recognize her face in a crowd. Her case is so captivating, so it's hard to blame people for being morbidly curious, but I do understand where Natasha's reasoning lies. People say that Natasha has some sort of weird attachment to this place as a byproduct of Stockholm Syndrome but she contests this with the simple fact that she filled in the cellar where she was held inside with concrete back in 2011. As of now, it's unclear to me if she ever actually lived in the house afterwards, or if she's just the owner, or even if she's still the owner. But again, people use this as fuel against her, using it as a reason to misdiagnose her with disorders that don't hold any validity and disregard her experience as a victim of serious abuse. The thing about Stockholm Syndrome, like I briefly mentioned before, is that it's not found in the current version of the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, which doesn't mean that in the future it couldn't be researched further and classified, but as of now, calling it a syndrome is a bit of a misnomer. There is not nearly enough academic literature to even piece together what it means to have Stockholm Syndrome. Despite the inconsistent body of scientific literature on the topic, it is widely discussed on the internet and I'd be doing you a disservice if I didn't talk about it. I think most people would agree that there certainly is an interesting connection that can happen between abusers and victims that may or may not fall into the criteria widely recognized by the general public as Stockholm Syndrome. It's paradoxical. The sympathetic sentiments that victims and captives can begin to feel towards their captors are the opposite of the fear that the abusers try to consistently instill in those victims. People on the internet and scientists trying to research Stockholm Syndrome better have categorized four components of behavior that victims suffering from this paradoxical sympathy seem to exhibit. Criteria is that the hostage develops positive feelings for their captor, which can manifest as empathy or sympathy, romantic feelings, and a myriad of other things. Secondly, an important criteria is that there is no previous relationship between the abuser and victim. All the victim knows is the whirlwind that the abuser has sucked them into. Third, there is usually at least some degree of hesitancy by the victim to cooperate with police, which is not something seen in the case of Natasha Kampusch. Lastly, the victim believes in the humanity of their captor, and at times, will convince themselves of the normalcy of their dynamic, no longer perceiving their abuser as a legitimate threat. Natasha's circumstance doesn't fit this point either. Despite Natasha mourning Wolfgang's loss after his death, she has openly stated that he is a criminal, and has been very candid with the media and the police about the abuse she suffered. In my opinion, it seems the relationship here fits more of a trauma bond type of scenario. I'm not going to speculate too much, but I felt that this was important to talk about since Natasha herself dislikes being told that she suffers from Stockholm Syndrome, and it's something that people use against her quite often. 
Emotional trauma bonds can arise from recurring cyclical abuse perpetuated by intermittent reinforcement through punishments and rewards, which seems to fit a lot better the situation experienced by Natasha. However, this is also not explicitly stated in the DSM, so it's really hard to elaborate on why exactly Natasha demonstrated what some people regard as odd and unwarranted sympathetic behavior towards Wolfgang. Natasha contests that it's relatively normal to adapt and identify with the kidnapper after spending as much time with them as she did. She's quoted as saying, looking for normality within the framework of a crime is not a syndrome, it's a survival strategy. Personally, I have to sympathize with this. Everything that Natasha had done to cope, from the psychological regression to being a toddler, all the way to total obedience and compliance, I'm not sure if that categorizes her as having a syndrome. But this has not stopped people from straight up sending her hate mail, and if there's anything I ever ask of you as my listeners, please don't ever do something like this. This is terrible. Even if you think Natasha's coping mechanisms are strange, maybe you think that you would deal with the situation differently, that doesn't give anyone an excuse to send a victim any sort of hate mail or criticize the way they got through what they were going through. Natasha said that during her captivity, one of the many thoughts she had to sit with alone in the dungeon was that she knew that this story would make her famous one day when she did escape, especially as the years went on. However, she compared it to thinking it would be something like winning the Olympics. You win a medal, you're famous for a short period of time, mostly in your own city, and people praise you for a bit before it's all over and you can move on with your life. But some people have incidentally become obsessed with Natasha and have greatly criticized the way she's coped with her situation. She agrees that yes, Wolfgang Pricklepill is a criminal and an abuser, and yes, Natasha does suffer and deal with flashbacks but she doesn't view herself as a battered victim entirely. She is more than that and wants to be viewed as more than that. Attorney Monica Pinteritz said that Natasha is a very intelligent and very eloquent young woman. She's not just some poor victim. She is now an adult who wants her privacy respected. Nobody deserves to have the way they coped through trauma criticized. Circumstances of abuse can vary case by case, and the human brain is incredibly complex. There is no right way to deal with these kinds of things. Natasha Kampusch had her dignity robbed from her for long enough, beginning when she was only 10 years old, and I think it's perfectly fair and reasonable to expect that anyone who wants to curse her for feeling any type of way or coping in any type of way to just keep that shit to themselves. Thank you for listening to another episode of Crimopedia. I appreciate all of the consistent support, and I'm so grateful for everyone here. If there's one message that I want to leave you all with at the end of this episode, it's please, please be kind. You never know what someone has been through. Hating on someone is never cute, especially when that someone has been through serious trauma. Even if you've been through a very similar situation and decide that the way she deals with it is unusual, it's not your place to criticize her. It's nobody's place. It's Natasha's life, and I'm very happy that she's living it the way she wants to now. Oh, and my last piece of advice, Please cross the street if you see someone looming by a van and it makes you uncomfortable. Please cross the street if you see someone walking towards you and it's making you uncomfortable. Please be safe, everyone. I'll talk to you all soon. Mm -hmm.